morning. This is Millerville Community Church Online. I'm Beth Schmidt. We're really glad that you're joining us this morning. And uh, we are pausing in our story of Jacob and Esau, which we'll take up after the uh, Passion Week season is over. And um, we're going to stop and have a look at the triumphal entry today. And then next week, of course, is Easter Sunday. So that's what we're going to be doing. And um, I'll just ask you to pray with me now. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you teach us in your word. But mostly we thank you that you are the God of the word. That everything that's written in here about you is true. You are sovereign. You are the one who is definitely the creator of our universe. And Lord, we thank you that not only are you the God of the big picture, you're also a God of the very small, of the individual, and of us. And we pray that as we open up your word, that you would be speaking to us directly, individually, that we might honor you and worship you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, of course, our world is turned upside down, not just for um, our small village, a hamlet of Millerville, but for all of the Calgary region, Alberta, Canada, and the world around us. Everybody's lives are turned upside down. And there's not many times in the world where things are turned upside down. But there's another time when it was turned upside down, and that's when Jesus came the first time. And we await the second time when, once again, the world will be turned upside down. So we're going to be looking at the time when he came, and uh, his public ministry actually was very short, even though he lived for about 33 years on earth. It was really only three years that he had a public ministry. And uh, when he, in that short three years, is what most of the New Testament, the Gospels, are written about, is just that short period of time. But really, all the scriptures are about Jesus. And like all things, the origin of everything is written in Genesis. Genesis is a lot more than the origin of man. It's the origin of nations. It's the origin of the family of Abraham. It's the origin of the nation of Israel. It's the origin of so many different things and also the origin of the covenant and the promise that God made that he would send a savior to us, that he would save the world from its sin and that he would give us new life. So that's why we're going to start in Genesis and don't worry, by the end we'll be in Revelation. <laughs> that's like how I like to do it, Genesis to Revelation, all in 20 minutes. So um, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 49, and I'm going to read to you from verse 8 down to verse 12. And what this is, is it is actually about Jacob, so we haven't completely left Jacob, but this is Jacob as an old man after all of his events in life, and he's getting ready to die. And he brings in his sons, and he speaks to each one of them individually. And the first three haven't gone so well, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, um, what he said to them wasn't so great. And now comes Judah. But to Judah, he gives a promise. And here's the promise that he gives to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is the lion's whelp, or a cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and Shiloh means to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, or that means darker than wine, and his teeth white from milk or whiter than milk. And so right at the end there, it's talking about um, the wrath of God and his perfect justice is the white from milk, his perfect justice because of his purity. And so um, I want to pick up on this prophecy slash promise that Jacob gave to his son Judah. And as we know, Jesus came from the line of Judah. And really, even though um, Jacob is blessing Judah, he's really talking about the Messiah. And uh, Shiloh comes to whom it belongs. That's talking about Jesus himself. So it's a messianic prophecy. It's always understood as a messianic prophecy. And so we have here that... Um, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And the rabbis in Jewish literature and from ancient days always tied that verse to Zechariah 9.9, which is going to be one of the verses that we look at and the verse that's quoted in the passage that we're really focusing on in Matthew, the triumphal entry of Jesus. But the beginnings are always really embodied in Genesis. So knowing the book of Genesis really will open up so much of the rest of scriptures for us. So I want to move us to 2 Samuel, and uh, what we see here is the life of David. And uh, David has been, um, he's from the tribe of Judah, and as we know, um, there were, you know, there's all the time of the family, then they went into Egypt, and they came out of Egypt, they went into the promised land under Joshua, and they were um, a tribal people, the 12 tribes, and they didn't have a king. They were ruled by judges, and so he had the time of the judges. And it wasn't until Saul, the first king, that we moved into the time of the kings. And David is the king that came right after Saul. Saul did not have a heart for the Lord, but it always says that David had a heart for the Lord, that he was a man after God's own heart. And so um, it was to David that God made this promise. So I want us to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verses 8 to 11, I'm going to read. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, that's Sabaoth, that's, um, that's God's fighting name, like his military title, I took from you the pasture from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. So it's God who made David so great. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them 
that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now this is really significant because right before the Lord told David this, David, like he's an old man by now, and he said, all these things have happened, and the Lord has been so good to me all these years, and so I want to do something for the Lord. He's been living in a tent while I live in this palace, so I'm going to build for the Lord a beautiful house for the Lord. And um, he, you know, David asked Nathan, who was his prophet at the time and sort of his right-hand advisor, and he says to Nathan, this is what I plan to do, and Nathan says, yeah, go for it. That's a great idea. So David plans to go for it. In the middle of the night, the Lord speaks to Nathan and corrects Nathan for speaking so quickly and not consulting the Lord. And the Lord says, no. He says, David is not going to do that. It will happen, but it's not going to be David that does it. And the Lord says, um, you know, who are you that I've ever needed this? Have I ever asked for this? No. And so he says to Nathan, you've got to go and tell David that you were wrong and that the Lord has not directed him to do that. So while David thinks he's going to build a house for the Lord, the Lord gives this prophecy to Nathan to give to David. And the Lord promises David a house instead. And so the Lord kind of turns that around. And so uh, it's going to be the Lord who builds a house for David. And look at David's response to that, verses 25 and 26. This is his response to when Nathan comes and tells him this. Now, therefore, um, oh, just a sec. I want to read from verse, I think, 19 first. Or 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me this far? Like he understood um, the messianic nature of the prophecy, and he's saying, Well, who am I? Like you made this covenant, but who am I that you would make this with? And look down now to verse 25. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant in his house, confirm it forever and do as thou hast spoken like forever that thy name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and may the house of thy servant David be established before thee so David understood the Lord's blessing on him ultimately isn't for magnifying David's name but for magnifying the name of the Lord he says that it might give glory to you O Lord and I think of, of us, like we're in a, you know, we say that we're in a me-centered culture, but has it ever been any different? We've always been so me-centered. We're very self-centered people. And we think of the world around us in from our own perspective and our own viewpoint. And what has this done for me? And is this any good for me? Even what we're going through right now with self-isolation, we hear people saying, well, why should I have to do that? We live a very self-centered life. And yet David is understanding, you know, it's not about me. It's not God's blessing isn't just about me. It's about God's name being magnified. And so the question always for us is, do we see that? Do we understand how our lives are to magnify the Lord? 
And so uh, David really did get that. And his prayer was that God's name would be magnified. So, um, as I said, David's getting on in years. And we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. And there we have uh, the end of David's reign. And uh, there's always, you know, a juggling for position when a great man dies, then other people want to fill that void. And that for sure happened with his sons. But um, David, because God had told him, uh, promised the, the throneship to Solomon. And even though his brothers were trying to get that throne, um, it was Solomon that David gave it to. And so uh, look at chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. Then King David, <coughs> David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. So he's really old. He's in bed. He's not really getting around anymore. He's going to die soon. And um, he's making his wishes known. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon, which is across the Kidron Valley um, by the springs that feed into Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to put Solomon on my mule because what that was is it signified that he was on David's donkey and that was going to be what was going to be the sign to everyone that Solomon's reign is blessed by David. And so that we keep seeing um, the donkey or the mule keeps rising up to the surface for kings. And uh, it's not just actually in, um, in this literature. It's in all kinds of other literature, like, you know, the, the, um, the Gilgamesh story in Aga, and we see it in um, the writings of Mari. We see it in all kinds of ancient cultures back then that the donkey signified the king's mount. And uh, when th they came in on the donkey, that was coming in as a messenger of peace, that they had already done the conquering. The war horse is for conquering, but the conquering's done. So when they come on the donkey, it's like, I'm in charge here. I don't have to fight any battles because I am the king, and everyone will bow down to me. And so that's really what's happening here with, uh, with David um, giving the donkey, his donkey, to Solomon to ride. And in verse 48, the king also has said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today while my own eyes have seen it. So David's praising God and saying, Thank you, Lord, that I got to see my son sitting on the donkey, that I see that he will be the next king. And so he's praising God for that. So this king, um, King Solomon, uh, David was a man of war, which was one reason why the Lord said, no, you're not going to build my temple, but your son Solomon will, because he's going to be a king of peace. And so Solomon really brings in the greatest time of Israel's history where, you know, David had conquered all these lands and God had been with him and now Solomon is going to reign over it and actually the lands are going to extend even further. And it's going to be in Solomon's reign 
that it's going to be the largest that the nation of Israel has ever possessed. And so um, it's still not as much as what is promised to Abraham. That's yet to come. But um, that was an amazing time for the nation of Israel. So the king comes in peace. Now, like I said, the rabbis connected this uh, prophecy in Genesis 49:11, and um, you know the the whole donkey thing and the king being on the donkey was Zechariah 9:9. So if you'll turn with me to Zechariah 9:9, and uh, I'm going to read 9 and 10. And we see here um, this wonderful time for Zion. So Zechariah is one of the prophets, so he's bringing all these judgment warnings, particularly to the nations around Israel. But in the midst of all of the judgment warnings, we always hear promise. There's always a message of redemption, a message of promise. And here we see it in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations." So the nations are the Gentile nations. When he speaks of peoples, it's usually a reference to the Jews. And when he speaks of nations, it's a reference to all the Gentiles. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so we see in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, this message of salvation that he is bringing peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea. By the way, that's why Canada was called a dominion is because of this passage that um, God would rule in our nation from sea to sea. And so uh, we're called a dominion for that reason. But it's really a reference to Christ's dominion. And uh, really, it's actually a reference to when he will return, when he comes back in the second coming. So he's talking about his salvation. And I want us to turn now to um, where this now is referenced to Jesus directly. So we see it in all the Gospels, but let's just turn to Matthew chapter 21, the first Gospel that we have. And in Matthew 21, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, he's been in and out of Jerusalem, but, you know, more, not undercover, but quieter. Um, The crowds have been, you know, following him around, but it hasn't, like, he hasn't come in triumphantly. This is when he comes in triumphantly, and it's a week before the sacrifice. It's that week. And so uh, it's actually exactly a week before the resurrection. And so he comes in, and uh, this is how um, he enters. He comes in on the Mount of Olives, and it says that in the second coming, this is where he's going to come from, is over the Mount of Olives. And so um, starting at verse 1, And when they had approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, and had come to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, 
you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet, meaning Zechariah, might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Bring your king. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid, them, laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet. Like, that's not just a prophet. It's the prophet that they were expecting. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And then it goes on. And, I mean, this is all really good. But this is what we're focusing on today. And so uh, the donkey and the colt. And it says here um, that he, gent he is gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. And I know that, uh, I know for me anyway, when I first read this many years ago, I thought, oh, that means that he's really humble. He doesn't come in on a big war horse. He's coming in gently and meek and mild, like we picture Jesus in our Sunday school sometimes. And actually, that isn't the picture here at all. The idea of gentle, um, that word is actually proutus in the Greek. And what it means is that he's humble and obedient before God. That's what it means. And so that Jesus is coming in, and he knows full well that he's coming in for his death. He's coming in for the sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb. Did you know that on this day, which is the 10th day of Nisan, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, is the day that they chose the lamb, four days before the Passover, this is the day where they choose the lamb for the sacrifice. This is the day that Jesus was chosen. But there's another significant day in Israel's history. And that's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 4. And that's the day that Israel entered into the promised land. And so we see this connection in scripture between all these things. They're not insignificant. And we're told these things so that we will pay attention to the scriptures, that we'll make these connections and we will discover these truths in God's word. That what God is saying is that Jesus' sacrifice is bringing to us the hope and the promise and that we will enter into the promised land, that we will enter into the life abundant, the life in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he's gentle, he's obedient to God, he is going to go to the cross, and he is going to die on the cross. And remember, he had asked God, he had asked the Father, you know, if the cup could pass from him, and the Father essentially said, no, this is the way. And Jesus was obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. And so the question for us is, are we? Like, is that what humility is for us? It's not talking about a false humility that says, oh, no, I, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I'm, you know, I'm not good enough for that. That's not what humility is. Humility, according to God, is obedience to him. 
And so just like Jesus was obedient to the Father, the question is, am I? Are you obedient to the Father? So um, the Lord had need of it. And, you know, it, it tells us in the other um, scriptures that we have in Luke and John that uh, when they went and got the donkey that there were other people around that said, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? You can't just take that donkey and the colt like it belongs to the people who live there. And um, all that the disciples said exactly what Jesus told them to. Yay, finally, the disciples do exactly what Jesus told them to do. And they say, well, the Lord has need of it. And that was enough. Like they said, oh, well, why don't you say so? Go ahead, take it. And so uh, it was just really simply done. So to us, it seems so strange. But remember, the Lord is at work. And he's showing himself even in these small details. And so the people, um, when Jesus came in on the donkey, they laid their garments um, not only on the donkey but before him because that's what you would do for a king entering so he's not walking, like his even his donkey isn't walking on the dirt. And uh, they're you know spreading the palm branches, which we talked about another time. Palm branches are actually a symbol of patriotism for the Jews and freedom. And it started in the days of the Maccabees when they finally were able to um, revolt against the Greek Empire who had subdued them and had, you know, essentially enslaved them. And so they were able to throw it off and the palm branches became their symbol of freedom. And uh, here we see them doing this again. So when they pull out those palm branches, what they're saying is they're not really understanding. For sure there's some in the crowd who get it. But most of them are thinking we're going to throw off the Roman government just like we did the Greek government. We're going to get rid of that government yoke that's on us. And we're going to be free of the Romans finally. And so they're shouting because this is the son of David. So they're recognizing the lineage of Jesus. Remember at the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, we get the lineage of Jesus. And it always goes back to David. David is so key, and it, it actually also goes back to Abraham, but David is so key because God promised that the Messiah would be a son of David. And so the people are acknowledging that. Hosanna to the son of David. And they're rejoicing that it's David's son who is coming to save them. Hosanna means save us. And so he's coming to save them. They're thinking the Roman government, but God has a much, much bigger picture than the Roman government. God always has a bigger picture than we do. We, we're going through a time where governments are kind of starting to exert some you know, pretty significant power over the people, all governments, not just some of the governments in the world. And they're saying, you can't leave your house, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't meet in groups. And we're seeing a lot of this, and you know, some of us are saying, well, that's good because we're fighting this COVID. And others are saying with a raised eyebrow, I don't know, this doesn't feel very comfortable with this much power for the government. And so we kind of have those, those ways of thinking, and they did back then too. They're, they're people like us. And so they're thinking, we don't like this government. We don't want them to be telling us what to do. We're a free people, we don't need that. And, um, but God's picture is way bigger than COVID-19, than what's happening here in, in Israel with the Romans. It's way bigger because God's love 
is for all the world. His joy is that we would come to salvation. But he's calling us. He's beckoning us. And just like these people in the crowd, there's some who get it. And there's others who only want relief from the circumstances they're in. And maybe that's you. Maybe with this COVID-19, the threat is so great. Maybe it's even in your own sphere. Maybe it's already hit your sphere. And we just want relief in the circumstances. We want life to go back to what we know is, as normal. We don't want to have these restrictions placed on us. And yet God has a much bigger picture of what freedom's all about. It's about freedom from slavery to sin. It's freedom from the penalty of sin. It's freedom actually from death itself. And that freedom comes from this king, this son of David, Jesus Christ the Lord. So he is the one who's bringing salvation. And the salvation is not from the Roman government. It's not from COVID-19, although, yes, those things may happen. It's from sin itself and the penalty that comes with sin, which is death. And so um, they um, shout this out in joy. And uh, in Luke 19, verse 38, it tells us that there will be peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it's interesting that's Luke because that's what the angels proclaimed at the birth of Jesus, that it would be glory in the highest, that it's not just the birth of Jesus that brings glory to God, it's also the death and the resurrection of Jesus that brings glory to God. Turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. And we see uh, John's um, um, description of it. So, um, John chapter, oops, sorry, hang on. John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And this is actually Zechariah 9.9 that we already read. So there's a direct, the rabbis had it right, and this is before Jesus even came, and they were connecting it with the Messiah. And here is the Messiah saying, yes, this verse is about me. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, in other words, when you know he um, went up to heaven after the resurrection, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So um, they are called to be a witness later. They don't, like they're going through these events and not really recognizing how significant they are. And when they look back, they realize, and I think, you know, that happens to us too. We go through an event and, um, you know, Arnie and I went on a vacation last year and, and we really enjoyed it. But it was actually after we got back that we kept remembering things and remembering this. And, you know, things came back to our mind that were um, just a wonderful memory. 
and a remembrance. And that's actually what's happening to the disciples is the Holy Spirit is bringing a lot of this back to their mind and giving them a new understanding, you know, a correct perspective of what they went through. So even though they may have missed it at the time, they certainly got it later. So he's coming, king of Israel, but not just of Israel. In Philippians, Paul, the apostle, tells us it's actually a lot more than just Israel. So in Philippians 2, and he's talking here about the second part of Zechariah, because this is just the first part of Zechariah that was quoted, the part where he comes in on the donkey, where it's a message of salvation. Now we have the further message, which is his second coming and the establishment of his kingdom. And Paul says to us in Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Wow. That's everyone. That's all-encompassing. Everyone is going to bow to the name of Jesus. So the donkey signifies the king's entry, and he is actually king now. And his kingdom has started, but it's not the fullness of the kingdom. He says it starts like a mustard seed, and it keeps expanding. And so we see that his kingdom is expanding. You'll hear news reports that the Christian um, world, the Christ Christendom is diminishing, but actually the true kingdom of God is expanding. The news won't report that, but God tells us that in his word, and we believe it. And the day will come when he will return, and he will be everyone's king, because every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, king of all, king of kings and lord of lords, and it goes right back to the Genesis 49, 11, where it was said that he would reign. I want us to look, um, just to conclude, I told you we'd get right to Revelation. And of course, I can't not talk about Revelation 19, um, where Jesus comes in. This is uh, nine chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Fire always shows us um, judgment and purifying. And upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from, so remember we talked about the horse, and that's when he comes in judgment, and that's when he comes to conquer. And so um, they were following him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And this is where he judges the nations who did not follow after him. And so the sword, um, we read, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress. Remember Genesis 49, 11, where his eyes are dark as wine? Um, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath 
of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will establish his kingdom. And his kingdom, we are told over and over, is going to be a kingdom of peace. There will be no more war. There will be no more battles. There will be no more tears and frustration at injustice. There will be no more striving. It will be a kingdom of peace where justice will reign and Jesus will be in charge. So we come full circle back to that promise that Jacob laid on Judah who would bring forth the Messiah. So the question for us is as we celebrate this Palm Sunday and as we think about the triumphal entry of Jesus and we think about the crowd that was around him, his disciples, the Pharisees who were kind of watching from a distance at this sight to them that was so terrible, and we wonder, who were you at in that crowd? Who would you have been? Would you have been a passive onlooker that kind of got swept up in all this activity and you didn't really have any thoughts about it all? You're just kind of watching the crowd at the back? Or would you have been one of the disciples who's actively involved in going and getting the donkey and bringing it back and kind of controlling the crowd so that Jesus can get through with his donkey? Like, would you have been one of them? One of those who believed and later understood even better what this was all about? I wonder. I hope that I would have been one of those. But today is the day to think about that. The disciples, um, remembering is not just about, oh yeah, recalling. Remembering is about acting upon what we know. And so when they remembered, it means that they acted upon it. They told others about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, Jesus the one who brings salvation. And so the rest of their lives, they spent the rest of their lives, and most of them met a martyr's death. But they all spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, proclaiming that he is the one who is the victor, that he is the one who has conquered sin, conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered evil, and he is the one who brings salvation. So today is the day of salvation. If you do not know the Lord in this way, if you're a passive onlooker, it's not good enough. You want to be in all in both feet and so today is the day of salvation and so i would encourage you to pray and to ask the lord to be your lord your king not just the king but your king and that you would follow the lord and remember the things that he has done in your life to remember how his good hand has been on you through thick and thin through difficulties and through joys god's hand is on us and he is always leading us toward him. But we still have to make that choice to go willingly and to follow him and to bow to him, the king of all kings. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for you are the wonderful one who has come to save us. You have brought salvation. We cry out, Hosanna, save us. And indeed, you answer that prayer and you do. You rescue us from the slavery of sin. You rescue us from the penalty of sin. You rescue us from hell. You rescue us from death and its sting. And you promise us new life 
a life abundant, a life lived in your Holy Spirit, and a life that's everlasting with you in your glory. So we would just ask that you would help us to understand these words that you have written. And where we have questions, that you would just help us to probe into your word and to have understanding and to um, follow you fully with all of our hearts, to not be passive onlookers, to not be indifferent, but to follow you wholeheartedly as David did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.